So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. How are you this week? I'm feeling good. Yeah, I'm how are you? Really good. I feel like this week's been very different to last week. I feel like I've just like smashed loads of stuff, just got so much done. It's been super productive. I think like every day I've kind of finished the day being like, yeah, I've really done lots today it's been so productive and great it's productive and great <laughs> yeah who like, could ask for more like I, I love a day when at the end of it i can look back and be like it's been really productive and i'm like proud of what i've done yeah and yeah i feel like last week has been that it's been really good yeah wicked well i am excited because we've got lots going on in podcast land we've got some upcoming events and stuff that we'll be telling you about very soon and this wednesday we are dropping our very first bonus episode so as we've talked about before when we did our live podcast in the apple store we're actually releasing those episodes over the next two wednesdays so yeah bonus episode on the next two wednesdays um, and i know a lot of you guys have been asking for so we have some unfinished business don't we yes we do david so last week we got halfway through our do's and don'ts of digital marketing but we only managed to do the don'ts because we took so long doing those that we didn't want it to take forever so here's the do's here's the do's um i i that was a week ago so i don't remember what any of the do's are so you're gonna have to remind me so what's our number one do so our number one do is to be engaging and be social on social media like it's called social media for a reason so be social on it i think too many people think my content's good enough and i can just go out and then i don't have to worry about anything else but growing a community and meeting people and like making friends in the social space is so so important to growing a successful business yeah i went to a uh, influencer agency and gave a talk this week and one of the things that we were discussing there before i sort of went on one of the guys was was kind of talking about how there's so much negative press towards social media at the moment yeah and um i think a lot of that comes from people getting frustrated with seeing people having great success that necess- that perhaps don't have the talent that they have yeah um, and i can see why that gets frustrating but they have a different talent and that talent is being able to make the most of the content that they're that they're putting out all i hear these days is people complaining about the algorithm and <laughs> yes it's a problem but you've like it's not going to change so there's no point complaining about it like it's nothing's going to happen you're not going to get a chronological news feedback so just yeah you're just just stop asking like they're never going to do it because it doesn't it doesn't work for them and also you wouldn't want it if you got it back you you wouldn't want it because it would be really impractical wouldn't it it's like you see content that is the best content that it thinks you want to see and generally it is good and if you keep scrolling if you're that bothered you will see every single post posts don't get hidden if you keep scrolling like i've got to a stage where you can scroll long enough and it says you've caught up yeah which is just bloody lovely because then it's like okay well i've seen everything now everything that's happened within the past two or three days be social on social media make friends with people find people in your niche to connect with 
talk to them like just drop them a dm like ask them how the day is ask them some advice like give them some tips of what they might be able to do like just create a community of people who are in the same niche and just get people together to have a talk like i've been messaged a few times by people who are like in the photography scene and want to kind of like start a bit of a group and just because i get messages saying like do you want to be a part of this group we're thinking of starting it soon and like some i've gone for and i've been in, been in them for a bit and then left other ones i've kind of gone in been in for, for ages and made some really good friends who i've like now met through these engagement groups we have guests on this podcast that are are really successful Mm -hmm. so have a look at what those guests are doing and when i look at someone like rhiannon lambert for Mm -hmm. example or madeline shaw like they can't reply to every single comment because they get thousands yeah but a lot of the comments they do reply to yeah um and if you've got 500 instagram followers and you can't be bothered to get back to to the three people that are commenting on your stuff then like you you need to work it out yeah look what other people are doing like when you see people like that who've got hundreds of thousands of followers and they are responding to as many people as possible with good like actionable feedback if you if you've got a tenth of that and you can't like something needs to be sorted out here like they're successful for a reason because they've put that time in to build these communities if you are worried about algorithms there is something which does not rely on algorithms whatsoever and that is a podcast and we know that every week everyone is getting our message because it's in podcast form and so if if algorithms are worrying you there are other ways to get your message out there yeah and that goes perfectly onto point number two david so well, nice segue there step two is being patient and creating evergreen content yes and this is this is such a key thing because i think this this relates to business certainly what we've done with our business it relates to it in in a wider sense as well so i often talk about planting flags so as many flags as possible so when i was painting graffiti in the streets i used to look at my at my paintings as flags mm-hmm. so every now and then like a flag would get buffed out or it'd be painted over by another artist but my goal was to have as many flags out there as possible because the more people that saw my flags the more i would get known and recognized yeah now we live in a world where you can create online flags every piece of content that you create whether it's a podcast episode a blog a piece of content on instagram that is a flag that someone can discover at some point and those as examples i think podcasts blogs and youtube are three platforms that are evergreen like if you put something on instagram you can't search for it in a year's time like it's just it's down a feed somewhere it's very kind of short so i'd definitely say like make sure you don't put all your time just into social because you're not creating any evergreen content there whereas on youtube and blogs and with podcasts as well all of those are searchable from from google which if you're selling products or selling a service or doing anything to run a business most people are going to go to google to search for that and like youtube is owned by google so it's all integrated within to the same platform so they say it's like the, the second biggest search it, engine in the world yeah it? it is yeah youtube's the second biggest search engine so create content that people can actually search for so if you can create a piece of content a week and you do that for three years that's only 150 pieces of content that are out there permanently that anyone could search for at any time like a lot of the biggest youtubers will have videos that they made three or four years ago that are still getting hundreds of thousands of views every month because 
they're answering a question that's still relevant. Yeah. I mean, we get messages every week from people who say, I just discovered your podcast. Yeah. And then they have a backlog of every old episode to go through and to sort of to catch up where everyone else is. Um, And I don't mean just catch up in terms of like listening to the content, but like catch up in becoming like part of our ecosystem, like getting to know us as people, getting to know our guests, like maybe following some of the guests and, and like coming into this whole world so um and that can happen at any time because that that content is always going to be there yeah absolutely so if you're if you're looking to do digital marketing make sure that social media isn't your only avenue because if it is you're not creating anything evergreen there it's all just slowly disappearing down the feed whereas if you can create things in other areas that are actually searchable that last forever like do you have any content like that yeah, and I think that that then goes to talk a little bit more about like how long we're spending on these Instagram posts. Mm-hmm. We're definitely in the habit now of like kind of published is better than perfect. Mm-hmm. Let's just get it out there. Yeah, I was listening to something recently that was talking about how now that we have the stories, all of our creativity goes into the stories and then we agonize so much about what we put out into our actual feed mm-hmm. because all oh, the feed has to look beautiful. Um, and I can't remember who it was that was posting it, but they were basically saying put out as much content as possible and don't be so precious about your feed Mm -hmm. Um, because at the end of the day people are only going to see it for a very short space of time and then it's going to be lost Mm. on the topic of published is better than perfect published isn't better than good yes which i think too many people make that mistake of like just getting loads and loads of content out it's like you can put out bad content forever and you're never going to get anywhere so what's so important is to make sure that what you put out is good. And how, what is good? I suppose if you look at other people in your niche who are doing really well and seeing what they're doing, like does your content, is your content equal to that? If it's not equal or better, then you need to get, you need to get better at creating content. You need to get better at writing. You need to get better at taking photos. You need to get better at video editing. You need to get better at telling stories. And how do you do that? Like you need to learn. By doing, yeah. Yeah, you need to, well, you need to, find people who are experts at those things and learn from them that's like the way we learn everything it's like if you want to get better at telling stories find some expert storytellers who've written books or create content that you can consume to get better at doing that i think and it's a it's a slow process it doesn't happen overnight but you will get incrementally better the more that you do and it's clear that good content gives you such an advantage over everyone else because when you look at someone like Brandon Wolfel who we had on the podcast his content is just beautiful to look at so it's no wonder that he has three million followers he has done the marketing work he has done all of our do's and none of our don'ts but at the same time he's also really really good Mm. so there is there's a balance of perfecting your craft whatever your craft may be becoming really really good at that and then learning how to get people to recognize it Mm -hmm. and as you do that you will start to notice that you become more confident Mm -hmm. because through repetition that's how we get good at things and i've certainly started to notice it with the more public speaking that i'm doing the more i'm on stage the more confident i get with it and if you would like to book me to speak then email connect at rebelscreate.com but um yeah the more the more that i do it the more confident i become Mm -hmm. at it and I learned loads from uh, this week's guest, um, from her book and from this interview. And this week's guest is Viv Groskop. Viv Groskop is a journalist, a stand-up comedian, an author, and a speaker. 
Her latest book, How to Own the Room, studies some of the greatest public speakers of all time and dissects what it takes to not only speak and present, but also to just live a little bit more confidently in your own skin. Viv also explores this topic on our podcast, which is also called How to Own the Room. And through these interviews, she shows that there's more than one way to own the room. In fact, you can own the room in your own unique way, like no one else can. In this episode, we talk about going freelance, the challenges of stand-up, and an abundance mindset. If you're always operating from a place of lack Mm -hmm. and scarcity and oh, I must only work on my kitchen table with my children and not spend any money on some office space or some time away, then you are actually harming your business and and your creativity. Mm. Hi, Viv. Hi. Thanks for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So you've been a freelancer for about 20 years. And yeah. Does I, that make me seem ancient? No, not at all. That, that, um, I, that, I will kind of want to be, actually. I want to be the purveyor of ancient wisdom. Yes, you are. Like okay. in Doctor Strange, the, the ancient one. That's what my children call me, the ancient one. <laughs> oh, that's oh, not Doctor yeah. Strange. No, no that, he's too cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, the ancient one's a bit weird. She's quite old. She's quite annoying. That's how my children perceive me. I think for our audience, a lot of them are have taken the leap into freelance, but there's a lot of a lot of them who are listening who we know just from the messages we've been sent are kind of maybe thinking of taping taking that leap, and it is a a scary first step that we that we kind of forget about. How did you sort of decide to take that road? Yeah, well, this is going to be a bit of a tale of the olden days, I'm afraid. I went freelance in 1998, so I'm 45 now, and I was 26 when I went freelance. And I was a journalist uh, then. I'm pretty much still doing some journalism, but that was my full-time job. And I had always wanted to to work in journalism, and I had tons and tons of rejection out of university. I couldn't get a job anywhere. I had a first from Cambridge University in French and Russian, and I could not get on internship at Guardian, Times, Telegraph, anywhere. I couldn't get anywhere. Reuters, couldn't get anywhere. And I ended up doing work experience on Cosmopolitan magazine. That was my first kind of non-paid job out of uh, university. And then I did three years as a commissioning editor on Esquire magazine. And from there, I went to the Daily Express People are now like, oh my God, horrific. <laughs> and it was horrific. But that was a really interesting sort of six, first six years of my career, mm. five, six years, was working in places where I was very close to where I wanted to be, but also not where I wanted to be at all. And in a way, that was a great blessing because the way things worked out at the Express in the late 1990s, there was a new owner who came in and basically offered everybody redundancy. So I took a redundancy at the age of 26 from a job I hated, thinking this is going to buy me three to six months. I had maybe three to six months salary. Mm -hmm. And I was, oh, yeah, I had, you see, this is what would make some of your listeners sick, right? So (laughs) I was then, I was able to buy a flat. I had bought a flat at the age of 25 in North London 
on a deposit of five thousand pounds. Oh, right, God. I know the olden <laughs> days. Right, I'm so stupid. I then sold that flat three years later. No, yeah, can you? Because I, I didn't know, you know. Yeah. No, I, no, I'm not, I'm not yeah. Alan Sugar, you know. Exactly. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm not prop or a property magnet. So stupidly, I did not keep that investment. But anyway, I w I had my own flat. My overheads were quite low. I wasn't earning a massive salary, so I could take this redundancy and walk away. Um, I'm not. I don't think it would be so easy, maybe, for people now. So. Mm. I went freelance and my plan was I'm going to try freelancing for six months and if it doesn't work out, I can, I'm going to apply for jobs on other newspapers. And that was, yeah, in 2001. So however many years later, mm. here I am. I never did get another job. <laughs> and the revelation for me immediately in that period of six months afterwards of, you know, you, you go to work every day and then you wake up the next day and you've, you've taken, I mean, the redundant, when you take redundancy, they'll just say, yeah, it's accepted to go and clear your desk. No leaving party, nothing. You just have to go. And that for me at 26 was quite scary. And then mm. I woke up the next day and I was like, oh, I don't have any work. How does that work? <laughs> and the revelation for me in the next six months after that was, oh, I like working for myself and I don't have to work for anyone else because I used to go into an office every day. And although I kind of loved the activity of my job and I loved the people I was working with, I hated being in that trap of an office mm. and I wanted to machete people. And I felt <laughs> that they were genuinely at risk from me. <laughs> I, I hate hierarchy. I hate organization. I hate having to go to a meeting and sit in the meeting for an hour and nobody do actually decides anything. I hate all of that stuff. And to realize that as a freelancer, you don't have to do that. It was so liberating for me. So that was the first thing I learned. And the second thing I learned as a freelancer was that you need to pivot. That's the most important thing. So there's going to be a bridge between whatever you did before freelancing and being a fully fledged, totally organized, self-determined freelancer. And the pivot is probably going to be doing some freelance work for the people you used to work for. Mm -hmm. So I started out doing loads of freelance work for The Express, the previous magazines I worked for, like Cosmopolitan Esquire. Uh, if you take a redundancy there's loads of other people who will take redundancy at the mm. same time and they will all go work in other places so I would do loads of work for everyone else who'd been made redundant and in those days there was tons of freelance work in journalism and journalism was very heavily funded by advertising in a way that collapsed about 10 years ago so there was a lot of work and it was a really it was a great time and I was then so yeah I was about 26 I just met my husband I just got married and the other realization that I had had working in an office and seeing particularly other women higher up the food chain was, wow, if you have kids, you never see them. Mm. No judgment, just a fact. Um, if you have a hardcore job, then there's a lot of time that you don't have, that you have jurisdiction over yourself. And I knew I wanted to have children. So freelancing really enabled that. Not to say that I've, I've got three kids, they're eight, 12 and 15. Not to say that I have ever taken a day's, a, you know, a day off, really. Mm. I've never taken a day's maternity. Didn't take any maternity pay as a freelancer. God forbid, like when you're freelance, you work every day. <laughs> but I was always in control of that myself. And that mm. was what I wanted. So I got this incredible freedom from freelancing. 
And I did 10 years solid freelancing journalism. And then around my mid to late 30s, I started to get very itchy and think something's not quite working. And at the same time, the financial model of journalism was collapsing. And I was seeing it across the board because I work for so many people. I've worked for pretty much any newspaper you can name. Mm. I've freelanced for them. I'm very, I'm centrist politically. I'm very open-minded. I've had my stuff published in the Daily Mail because I believe in trying to get stuff into places where you can change people's minds. You know, I've written pro-choice stuff, pro-immigration stuff. Um, for the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. <laughs> and I'm quite proud of that, actually. Um, and but they printed they, it. That's yeah, great. and they did. And I've, you know, most of my career, they has been writing for The Guardian and The Observer. Um, but when everything started to collapse, sort of around 2008, 2009, I could see, oh, this newspaper's struggling to pay. Mm. This newspaper's, str- oh, this newspaper who always paid the best rates, they've just put them down by 50%. Mm. What? And I could see it wasn't just, there are a lot of people who were saying, oh, this newspaper seems to be collapsing a little bit. And I was like, no, 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 all of them are cutting back, all of them. (laughs) And I'm saying this now as if I totally understood it at the time, but I didn't. It was more that I had a sense of it. And I think as a freelancer, you get a sense of things before you can quite realise what they are. Mm -hmm. But this was growing in me as well alongside... I guess it was a bit like a sort of early midlife crisis or something. Maybe I'm flattering myself by saying early (laughs) midlife. But then I had three children by this point and I was always saying to them that they must do whatever they want with their life. And that was really preying on my mind because I felt I wasn't. And that that feeling combined with, I don't think this journalism thing is going to be a great grower Mm. into the future. Uh, made me reevaluate everything. And that was when I started doing stand-up comedy because that's what I'd always wanted to do. So I did this weird pivoting thing where I was using the freedom of my freelance career to try out other things. And I, I started doing comedy and I had lots of stops and starts with that and lots of denial about whether I wanted to do that professionally, whether I could do that professionally. If so, did that mean I wasn't going to be a journalist anymore? I went through a really kind of diva phase where I felt I was getting better at comedy and I didn't like anyone calling me a journalist, mm. which was hilarious because I was still earning like 90% of my income from journalism. Yeah, I was like, oh, don't call me a journalist. I'm a comedian now. Um, I've got over that now. <laughs> and then, yeah, that did become more professional. And I did this thing in 2011 where I was messing around with comedy, trying to work out where I was going with it, trying to work out how I was going to make any money from it. And I was realizing I just wasn't getting enough stage time. Mm -hmm. So I forced myself to do a hundred gigs in a hundred consecutive nights uh, because they say that you need to get up to a hundred gigs as fast as you can. Like if you get up to a hundred gigs and you're not getting paid, you've got a bit of a problem there. I mean, I'm not talking like getting paid loads of money, but like getting paid maybe 20 pounds or 50 pounds Mm -hmm. (laughs) for a five or 10 minutes. You you should be starting to get paid after like a hundred, 150 gigs. And if you're getting paid a long way before then, then you've got a real sense of, oh, actually I'm quite good. Yeah. It's like a good Yeah. So I use that as a kind of a Petri dish test of, is because as a freelancer, you have to keep justifying what you're doing. It's Mm -hmm. pretty harsh. You know, I was saying to somebody um, a thing last night that, 
Oh, yeah, I was talking to the actor Stephen Mangan at this thing last night, and we were both talking about creative failure and the things that people remember you for are often the things that you didn't put the most risk into it. Mm -hmm. And it's the things that you put the most risk into that it breaks your heart when it doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. And we really worship people who try crazy things, go and be a stand-up comedian, upturn your entire life, risk yeah. your marriage and your kids and your mortgage, <laughs> become a stand Hey, that's amazing. Um, but if behind the scenes, it really isn't working financially as mm. a project, as, as, a, as a professional commercial enterprise, <laughs> like it's so boring to say that. But it's true. It's there's a, not going to work. There's a romantic notion of that it has to be for the art. And there's, there's, you can't, I always say you can't forward a vision without, without commerce. And so in order for you to do great things in the world, like it's, it's fair, it's fine. It's okay for you to be paid for things. It's a very new phenomenon of that art, whatever your art may be, whether it's dance or com comedy or painting, whatever it is, that that should be it's it's only pure if it's made for not for a profit and i just i just don't believe in that no it's very complicated though because you know i know so many people who work in fields where it's very difficult to calibrate success mm. and you know um i know the novelist no lionel shriver quite well and she wrote five or six novels before we need to talk about Kevin became a massive yeah, yeah, yeah. international bestseller and all of her other novels. And she will happily say this, they were not successes and she was considering giving up and the, we need to talk about Kevin was rejected by 60 publishers. She fell out with her agent over it and had to get a new agent. And I think sometimes it comes down to a very, very personal feeling of, how much do I want this? Mm -hmm. What is going to define broken for me? Yeah. You know, and for everyone, it's going to be different. So for one person, you could write, you know, dozens of novels or, or do, you know, hundreds of comedy shows or try all kinds of things and they're not financially successful or they're not critically acclaimed, but it would break you to not keep trying and it would make you feel as if you've betrayed yourself. Mm -hmm. But for someone else, and this was certainly true for me, I was like, well, you know, I have a husband, I have three children, I have a mortgage. I've, you know, I, I can't be somebody who lives starving in a garret and, and leaves their family and, Hey, I'm going to Vegas. I'm doing a show. Like, <laughs> I had to have a level of that in what I was doing. So I did five years of Edinburgh shows. This one woman shows, you know, you have a financial outlay to do that. It's an investment. So I had a level of, of that kind of, I want to say managed recklessness, but it's how you manage the recklessness that matters for me. Yeah. And probably I would have played it all very differently if I'd have been 25 and had no dependents and, you know, as you get older as well, you have a dis different sense of time. You know, you, time is running out mm -hmm. the older that you get. And you perhaps don't put, in some ways you don't put so much into projects because you know this needs to pay off quickly, otherwise I need to move on to something else. Or in another sense, you're also very motivated because you're like, this is the last throw of the dice, you know, I'm getting old now. Let's make it happen. How much does a does a show cost, and what what are the outlays? Like, what what do you have to oh, invest in? My friend, are we talking about Edinburgh here? Well, I guess so because that's the yeah. So, one of the great kind of unspoken things about Edinburgh, although I do think most performers probably would speak about this, and I don't want to 
denigrate the audience experience at all. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the audience experience in Edinburgh is amazing. It's the biggest arts festival in the world. There are over 3,000 comedy shows. That's just comedy, plus opera, ballet, theatre, dance, improv. Like, everything you can think of is there. And the amazing um, Edinburgh International Book Festival is a whole, whole other thing in its own right, like the second biggest book festival in the UK. But for the performers, especially in comedy and on the fringe, that experience is self-funded. So I'm trying to think, like, what would be the minimum outlay that you... So, like, the first show that I did, I did... Well, I did it very much in increments. The first show that I did, I just went up for a few days and I put on what I thought could turn into a show idea... Mm -hmm on somebody else's bill. So somebody wanted a night off, I took the night over and we probably had a bucket on the door. So the only cost for me there, because I, and I only sort of advertised it on Facebook and Twitter and it was really like probably 50 or 60 of my friends really who came. And so the financial outlay is transport to Edinburgh, where to stay, you know, it's probably a few hundred pounds. So if you wanted to be able to say, I have been to Edinburgh and performed, you could probably do that in a few hundred pounds. <laughs> but that is not the same as doing an Edinburgh show. Yeah. So if you want to do an Edinburgh show, then you pretty much have to commit to the whole month. It's only really people who are very established who are able to say, you know, someone like Al Murray, you know, Al Murray will go and do five nights um, in the Spiegel tent and mm-hmm. sell out several thousand every night or, you know, Pleasance or somewhere like that. Um, He doesn't need to do the whole run unless he really wants to. Other people, especially if you're new or you're near the beginning, you're going to need to commit to the whole month. If you're very lucky, you can come in last minute in July and pick up two weeks if somebody has dropped out. And then your costs are living there for the entire month. Are the rents like through the roof as well at that point? Well, it depends whether you want to live in a in a hellhole with yeah. seven <laughs> other comedians, which age 45, I don't. Yeah. Sorry, other comedians. <laughs> um, I always went up there with my husband and my three children because I did not want to not see my family mm. for four weeks. And there really isn't any way. I always used to think, oh, maybe I can get a flight and at four o'clock in the morning and then come back at lunchtime and do this. I mean, that's crazy. You start thinking things like this, but yeah, I mean, it's, I'm trying to think of the minimum that people would, I think absolute bare minimum that you might spend over that month on accommodation is a thousand pounds. It's like 250 pounds a week Mm. if you're sharing. And I know this year people have got even more costs because there's a complication with the rental system. And then your outlay is things like marketing. So marketing, promotion, paying paying to go in the brochure and all that kind of thing is like several hundred pounds. Yeah. And is being in the brochure important, would you say? Because for me, I'd just put it all in Facebook ads and sack the brochure off, but I'm not in that circle, but just on instinct. Yeah, well, it, it comes down to loads of, I mean, I don't want to geek out too much about this, but <laughs> it comes down to what, what defines success for you. And for some people, success is going to be being in the brochure Yeah, because they just want the people who read the, I mean, the thing is the brochure is like, people won't know what this is, but the phone book, if people yeah. can remember what the phone book looks like, whoever needs uses a phone book now, I feel so sorry for phone book manufacturers. Mm. It's like a phone book, so, but people do look at it, you know, and I think there's a value there and yeah I think uh, if I, I've not been I think if I went I would get that because it's like going to a festival and having all the lineup it's just knowing who's where and at what times and 
that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, people will then be in the programme and do a screenshot of the programme and put it all over their social media. Yeah. So, yeah, most people would go in it, but I know lots of people who've done successful shows, especially on the free fringe, that haven't. But then you've got to do lots of viral marketing and lots of uh, flyering. I mean, just being in the brochure, that is not going to sell your show. You really have to decide, is this about bums on seats? Is this about making money? Is it about making, if it's about making money, I would say don't go. Is it about making impact? Is it about, because I'm looking for a new agent, I need to get agents to come to this show. Mm -hmm. What else, why else could people be, well, I guess younger people do it to get laid. Um, (laughs) Don't think anybody ever thought that was why I was doing it. I don't know if people ever, I guess some people just do it for fun. And when you get into marketing and promotion and are you going to hire a PR? So if you're not on the free fringe and you've got one of the venues, so you're at Gilded Balloon, Pleasance, The Stand, Underbelly, um, Assembly, generally part of your agreement to be at those places where you you normally have a ticket split um, and you might have a promoter, you might not have a promoter um, who's kind of arranging that relationship you as part of the agreement you have to say i'm going to be getting a pr because they want to know that, oh, okay, but you're promoting it that your promotion is you've invested enough well that's my experience anyway what was your motivation um was it just getting better and was did it form i just part wanted of your to be nights? loved <laughs> no my motivation was different at different times so the first time i did it when i just did a couple of shows i wanted to see what it felt like and and i was still trying to work out where do I sit in all of this? Where am I going with this? Why am I doing this? Am I doing this for my ego? Am I doing this because I need love from people? Am I doing this to show off? And mm-hmm. those are not good. Re- those are good reasons to acknowledge that you have those things and do something yeah. about it. But they're not good reasons to continue on a long-term career path. <laughs> Although it has been successful for many people. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't just doing it for my ego and how I felt about doing it if I enjoyed it or because look you know if you do Edinburgh show you have to do a whole hour of performing on your own of stuff that you've written and that's not for everybody like there are loads of people who like I've interviewed recently Catherine Tate and she had huge success at Edinburgh but her success was was with an improv thing that she did that just kind of took off and it wasn't until much later when she got taken up and she was already like she became very famous very quickly that she started to do scripted stuff and character stuff. So and that is not the same as doing she would she said she would not do a one woman one hour stand up show as herself. That's her idea of a total nightmare. Mm. So there are lots of different levels of what are you looking for? What kind of material should you be doing? Maybe you should be doing this in a group. You know, maybe you should be in a have a partner to do this with and maybe you should be in an improv group all, all these different things so I wanted to find out that I wanted to do this on my own I could do this on my own and then by the next time I wanted to find out should I be on the free fringe or should I be in a paid venue and I did about two weeks on the free fringe and it was okay but it just didn't feel quite right to me you know I'll be totally honest <laughs> I felt really old and I know there are people much older than me who are really successful on the free fringe but I don't know if it's because of my family set up and going home to my kids and all of that every day after the show. But I just felt weird about it. I felt like, oh, my God, I'm just pretending to be a student here. This is sad. And I was much more comfortable when I moved. I was at the stand for three years and I absolutely loved it there. And by then, my motivation was 
what have I got to say? What I what do I want to tell people about this year? I've got this this platform of being able to bring in an audience and say something and make it really fun. So then it's really exciting because it becomes about the show. And then it was also partly like with my second show, the first show, I didn't have an agent, not for my com- not for comedy and TV stuff. I had a book agent. But the second show, I was like, right, I want to get an agent now. I want to get an agent for my TV and radio stuff. And that year I moved my agent stuff for book and TV and radio all under the same banner and the and the show really helped with that and then this year because I've done five years in a row I'm taking a break which is great although my children who spent five years complaining that they have to spend their summer in Edinburgh I really are now go. complaining oh <laughs> you're so horrible why aren't we going to Edinburgh we love Edinburgh so you'll do it again I don't know I think if I don't do it next year, it will be strange because mm-hmm. then a two-year break is quite a lot. But I think you need to have a strong idea. You need to have something you really want to say or something that you, uh, even if it's just a title that comes to you and you think, oh my God, yes, I have to do that. Then great. So yeah. I'll see how I'm feeling. And I've also, since deciding not to do Edinburgh after last year, when I was at Underbelly with this show called Vivalicious, I decided last autumn that I was kind of a bit tired after Mm -hmm. five. It gets a bit Groundhog Day. Like with all things, especially in freelancing and creative work, when you're working on your own, the beginning bit when you don't know what you're doing is so exciting. And then the next bit when you're correcting all the things that you did wrong in the beginning bit, that's really exciting. And then the next bit where you've kind of think, oh yeah, I can do this now. It's like riding a bike. This is fun. That's great. And then the next stage after that is like, oh, oh, what, what am I really doing with this? And I realised I was slightly at that stage. Yeah. And then it gets a bit Groundhog Day. And I didn't want to be doing it as Groundhog Day. So last autumn, I made that decision. And immediately, a lot of things started happening for me in the book world. So having had one book deal in the space of 42 years of my life (laughs) yeah so one book deal in 42 years in the next three years after that I got four book deals so (laughs) after Edinburgh this year I was a bit like you have quite a lot of books to write and quite a lot of planning to do of like some of those books are written but they haven't come out yet and I have to plan when I'm going to be working on what, when I'm going to be promoting what. Uh, at the moment, I'm doing a, a summer tour for How to Own the Room, Women in the Art of Brilliant Speaking, which came out last November. And that was a project that happened very, very quickly and has just taken off and became a podcast unexpectedly out of nowhere. I'm now on the third... I've now finished the third series, working on the fourth series, planning the fifth series. That's a whole thing. And then I've got another book coming out with my American publisher, which is for next year. Yeah. So there's so much going on that I'm still performing and I do lots of emceeing. You know, I emceed a gig this week, um, close to home and I'm keeping, and I've been supporting Lucy Porter a bit on her UK tour. I love Lucy Porter. She's adorable. She's wonderful. Yeah, so I'm keeping my hand in and I miss it when I don't do it. But I'm just being circumspect about not missing out on other opportunities. Do you like working on your own? Yeah, this is a problem. This is a very good, astute question. I am, yeah, a 
a freelancer who has a one person company (laughs) (laughs) who hates being alone. And it was one of the things that really motivated me in my mid thirties when I made that big change towards stand up. I know that sounds really weird because in Mm. stand up you're also on your own, Um, but I'm not really a loner. I'm not a loner. I love people. Um, although obviously if they're in an office, I have to kill them all. Um, generally speaking, I love people and I love the unpredictability of, of other people and how funny they are. And I just love it. I guess I'm not so lonely as I could be because I have my family. Mm -hmm. So I work a lot from home. My kids have known from a young age that it's not kind of, Oh, don't, don't bother mother. She's (laughs) She's writing a book. It's not like that, but they respect my space a lot because they just see me working, you know, all the time and it's, it's not a big deal. So that makes me feel less alone. But when I have to write a book, it is quite problematic because you need to have a lot of hours, like, compact hours so if I'm working on journalism then I can maybe work for two or three hours and get quite a lot done or maybe even get something finished but on a book you you've just got to stack up as many hours as you can it's going to be hundreds and hundreds of hours Mm. of you sitting on your own I mean it's making me feel a bit sick just thinking about it (laughs) and I just fit I just handed in you know an 80,000 word book that involved me doing exactly that and that's the fourth time that I've done that And now I've got to do the fifth one. And I'm trying to learn to enjoy the solitude, actually. Mm -hmm. And I, last year for the first time, um, working on How to Own the Room, when I was writing it, I took myself away. I, I, you know, found some really ridiculous, picturesque Airbnb Instagram place. The the dream book writing place. I was like like Cameron Diaz in The the Holiday. (laughs) That was me. Yeah. I looked exactly like her as well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And when I went to the pub, Jude Law was there. Um, So I, I booked a place exactly like that for five days and I just went and I wrote and it was wonderful and I was like oh this is a whole new world so when I delineate time and I do something that feels really like a bit of a treat for Mm. me and I think it's sometimes difficult as a freelance because I would always be thinking why are you spending money on going to stay in a thatched cottage so you can pretend to be Cameron Diaz who do you think you are (laughs) but actually when you think about it for me that is an investment because I will then get my work done. Yeah. And then when I come back into my London life where things are busier and people are saying, will you come on this podcast and will you come and do this event mm. and can I do a phone interview with you? And, and you know, hello, this is your bookkeeper. Have you done your VAT? You know, when all <laughs> of that stuff is going on, I struggle to get a lot of writing done. Yeah. So that I realise, you know, you have to make some decisions that are a bit sort of first world as as a freelancer but it's what you know some people call this abundance mindset thing that if you're always operating from a place of lack Mm -hmm. and scarcity and oh I must only work on my kitchen table with my children and not spend any money on some office space or some time away then you are actually harming your business and and your creativity. Mm. Obviously, you know, don't like take out a bank loan so that you can go and be Cameron Diaz for a month. Um, Actually, I would probably do something like that. Yeah, I think think the the latest Harry Potter book was written in a five-star hotel. So she just booked herself into a five-star hotel for the whole 
But she, yeah, I mean, she can afford it. Your average freelancer. Yeah. I think it's when you are freelancing and and money is tight, it is hard to look at, at those things as an investment. Mm. But they they certainly are. But the danger is of going. Yeah, I'll, I will never spend any money because I'm I'm scared of how much is coming in and and you're living hand to mouth as a freelancer. Yeah. But I do think that yeah, you have to look. It's like when we interviewed George and he was talking about it was really hard for him to outlay the money for a flight because he thought I'm paying. 700 pounds to sit in a seat for eight hours but it was an investment because of the content he was going to get when he reached that city mm-hmm. so i think yeah it's it's it is t- tricky but it's something that you should do is is realize that you are investing in your career yeah i think thinking of yourself like a business as well and like if you have a business of course you're going to invest in it to help it grow whether that's in marketing or what or whatever or office space and as a freelancer and an individual you are still a one-person business and it's worth investing in yeah, I think it took me a really long time as a freelance, particularly because I think for a long time I didn't think of myself as a freelancer. I thought of myself as a journalist. Mm. And I didn't really think, actually, no, journalism is the content of your thing, yeah. but you are a freelance entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You know, you are a business person and this is a business. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work as a business, you're going down. <laughs> you know, you're going back to an office and you will have to hide your machete. And it wasn't until I suddenly was like, oh my God, there needs to be a, prof- a profit and cost analysis here. Yeah. And what you're talking about is profit cost analysis. Mm-hmm. So if you it can invest something in something you need to do and the profit of it offsets the cost, you can tell from the way I'm talking that I am, I don't like this stuff, right? But I've tried to get it in my thick head. If, yeah, the profit offsets the cost, then it's really worth doing, but it can take a while to trust yourself. I think it's quite good to make really, really tiny mistakes. Mm. So I always promise myself from early on as if doing writing for journalism and even comedy stuff. And then increasingly when I was writing books, um, doing events so like if you do an event sometimes it's unpaid sometimes it's paid a lot of money sometimes it's paid a, not very much money and then you find out that someone else there got paid yeah, yeah, yeah a ridiculous amount of money and you just oh no like there's loads of stuff going on there and I had to really early on say to myself Viv it's okay to make mistakes but you must learn from them so if you do make a mistake write it down, like write down your learnings. And this is a great thing to do in comedy as well, or like any creative endeavor is what are the three things I did well? And what are the three things I would change? Never like what are the three things I did badly? Cause mm-hmm. that's just like dwelling on your failure. Yeah. So three things I did well, three things I'd switch up next Often time. Do you do that? Oh, I do it mentally mm-hmm. every single day. I'll do it after this podcast. Yeah. So after every event, yeah, thing. mentally, yeah, I'll think, okay, what went well there that I could make sure I keep in for the next thing that I do, and it might not even be specific things. It might be just a spirit of yeah. openness or generosity, or like now I'm thinking, oh, Viv, that was good because you gave people a concrete tip. You must remember <laughs> to give people concrete tips because people love concrete tips, and often we forget to drop those nuggets in. So I try to remember things like that, but I don't necessarily write it down formally. I used to write it down formally after every single gig with comedy because that is a real, I want to say like hellfire of failure. Yeah. You know, it's it's a very, very bitter and tough psychological and emotional failure if an entire gig goes badly or bits of a gig go badly or something you thought was going to be really beautiful and amazing and delightful is the bit that falls the flattest. 
you have to find ways outside of yourself to bounce back from those things and not take it personally. Yeah. And how do you do that? Because like stand up comedy is a ruthless world in terms of like coming away and not doing well. It must feel really shit. Like how do you. And you have to eat shit in order to progress, don't yeah. you? Like you have to bomb. This is the title of your book. You have to eat shit in order to progress. Yeah, I would like buy that. Soon. I would buy that book. I talk about this a lot because a lot of the lessons that I'm trying to bring out in How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking are about, yeah, eating shit actually. <laughs> and um, somebody said that the title of that book should be why it is not necessary to feel completely shit about yourself. Yeah. And that's a great motto. That's my <laughs> kind of message to the world. That is what I learned from stand-up comedy is that it is not necessary to feel completely shit about yourself. It is a process. It's an experiment. There are going to be times when it goes well and it was down to something that you did really well. If so, you better try and bottle that. Mm-hmm but don't be obsessive about bottling it. There are going to be times when it goes badly because you did something wrong. There are going to be times when it did badly because nothing would have succeeded in those circumstances. And it's learning to work out the differences between these things. And a lot of it is to do with where you're sitting in your ego. So in the beginning in comedy, you have, I think, a lot of ego and you, and that's a, a good thing in a sort of I'm thinking of the Hulk now you're a bit like the Hulk and you're like yeah I'm gonna smash this gig (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah I nailed it I very very rarely had those moments but then your ego in that space is also really fragile so if then you do have a really really bad gig and you bomb you think uh, I mean I literally sometimes would think after some gigs I can't I can no longer subsist in this society. I will have to delete myself. You know, you because our feeling of shame, you know, if people are into Brene Brown, they'll be familiar with this concept. You know, our feeling of shame, especially in front of our tribe, is extremely powerful. And that's one of the reasons that people are so scared of stand-up and so scared of public speaking or even so scared of, like, leading a pitch meeting or having a job interview, is that our feeling of shame is extremely close to the surface of our skin. And it's one of the emotions that springs to us the easiest. Mm -hmm. Because, well, I don't know the exact... I'm no scientist or anthropologist, but I, for me, it always rings true that the feeling of isolation or everyone else in the tribe hating you is almost as bad as being killed in a lot as by a lion you know in in caveman times Mm -hmm. yeah it it activates the same receptors as pain in our brains yeah so you you go into this panic of oh that's it for me i mean it's it's horrific but you have to realize that that's a physiological reaction. It's not actually a manifestation of you or your personality or your work. It's, oh, this is the feeling that you get when it hasn't gone that well. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And sort of learning to separate yourself out a bit from that feeling without becoming a delusional narcissist. <laughs> because sometimes I think, does Donald, does Donald Trump ever get that feeling? No, I don't think he does. <laughs> but then Why does I, he not fear reje- rejection by the tribe? I guess that's um, the, the perfect time to bring up what is happy high status. Oh, thank you for bringing up that concept. Yes, it is the perfect time. So happy high status is a concept I write about in How to Own the Room. And 
it's in the chapter about Michelle Obama because she's the person who embodies it the most. But the male figure who embodies it the most is usually described as George Clooney. So this is a concept, I think it was originated by Keith Johnston, the improv guru. Uh, And people talk about it a lot in improv comedy acting because a lot of that is about observing status on stage. And most narrative is about who's up, who's down. That's most narrative. And status is how you carry yourself in relation to other people. And happy high status uh, is usually described as... George Clooney and the the little story of it is you are going to the you've been to the Oscars and you're going to the Oscars after party you've got fabulous outfit on but it's taking you a while to get ready and you're late and your friends are waiting for you you go into the party you're pretty flustered you're adjusting your what would you guys be wearing like a Gucci suit or something maybe or is that too flash what would you of wear? course we would be yeah big what would you wear I mean a lovely I'd, hat I'd be in trainers Jeans, probably. Yeah, so you've got your, I don't know, like, vetement jeans on. <laughs> sure. And your special hat, and you're kind of a bit uncomfortable adjusting it, and you're just not really observing your surroundings, and you know you're late for your friends, and you're flustered, you go into the party, and as you go in, you tap one of the waiters on the shoulder and say, could you just bring me a drink? I'm going over there. And two minutes later, they've followed you, and they hand you the drink, and you turn around, and it's George Clooney. And because he's in black tie, you mistook him for a waiter. Mm. And happy high status is the look on his face, which is, this is totally fine. Here's your drink. No passive aggression. No, how the hell? What? Now, happy high status is not the same as high status. High status is if the George Clooney in that story is Donald Trump and the expression on his face. So... There's a huge difference that's so important to understand about business card status, job title status, Mm -hmm. political status, and real status, leadership, power, generosity, openness, authenticity. And that is not dependent on hierarchy. So you could have a so-called, in inverted commas, lowly role in life and still be happy high status. It's almost like a sort of Buddhist Zen thing of I'm okay, you're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and that is, I really feel that energy. I think we all understand what that energy is when we think of Michelle Obama. You know, she does have a small number of detractors. I would say many of them lunatic. (laughs) Um, I don't, I think it's really hard to take against Michelle Obama, right? Even if you don't share the same politics, it's very hard to take against her. But she does have some um, crazy detractors. But I think like 99% of people people see what that energy is it's openness receptiveness but authority like a sort of very calm authority it's exactly the sort of person who would just appear out of nowhere in a hostage situation and talk somebody off the roof Mm. you know that's the energy of everything's going to be okay You can express opinion that's totally different to mine. You can express fear. You can express anger. You can cry. You can laugh. You can laugh at me. It's that very, very calm, I'm okay in my space and I'm who I am. It's all good. And so you can be that too, even if it's against me. And surely I I could never be like that though, because Michelle Obama was obviously born like that, right? Great question. I don't think so. And in fact, she is a brilliant example of someone who has cultivated happy high status. So if you look back at her speeches from 10 years ago, or even from some of the press reports of the early campaign before uh, Obama announced his presidency, 
she is interviewed and she gives speeches and there's always a little tinge of something cynical or a sort of, I don't really want to be here kind of energy. So she would, because she's a very sharp, a smart woman. And in private, I suspect that she's quite cutting about I'm I'm only guessing this I'm like have the you know in my fantasy world where she's my best friend <laughs> we, we 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 like watch tv and bitch about everything together um, but I think she does have that in her like lots of us do you know in private with our friends you know to be cutting and she would say things on the cam- campaign trail to journalists like you know what he's not really all that which is kind of quite cool I like that but it was inappropriate and it's not happy high status because happy high status is, yeah, my husband's running for president. Isn't it great? It's not, oh, he's running for president. Oh, you know, like get over yourself. So there was that, uh, that she's managed to sort of iron out that, flatten it and accept her, her power and her authority and her responsibility. But there's a really interesting moment where people will probably remember this, where there was the handover. And I can't imagine, you know, the level of anger that must have been oh, sort gosh, of simmering yes. there. The handover between... Melania and Donald and and um, Barack and Michelle. I'm on first name terms with all of them. Um, <laughs> where they go to the White House and the limo draws up and Trump and Melania get out and Michelle and Barack come out of the White House and Melania has brought this gigantic Tiffany's box with her, which is completely against protocol. You know, you're not supposed to give gifts in that setting. And you see Michelle Obama's eye roll you see it. And she's, you know, you can see that she's thinking, oh, for goodness sake, you're not supposed to bring a gift. <laughs> what do I take? Do I open it? Do I take it? What, what, do I do? what do I do with it? And that is a fraction of a second that we see that. And then Barack Obama, who is, I think, possibly more naturally natural born happy high status than Michelle, whose happy high status is a bit more cultivated. Uh, he intercepts, takes the gifts, hand it to a bodyguard and sort of turns her away from the cameras so people can't pick up on her expression. Yeah. Of, what are you doing? And smooths that over. And so that's quite interesting for me. I think some people are, it is a form of charisma, and some people are, we all know, some people are naturally charismatic. I mean, you know, they can just turn it on and turn it off. But I think we can all cultivate an element of that, an element of happy high status and an element of charisma. Yeah, I 100% believe that. And obviously that was my question was to lead you into that. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it's all a journey and you forget, you always see the finished product and you forget the years of of training and practice and that, that go into cultivating that around yourself. I think, I don't know, how do you cultivate it? Practice, how do you cultivate? Say, just, yeah, it's well, just hitting um, the road over and over yeah, again. Yeah, practice and, and trusting your own feedback. So it's a bit like that thing I was saying before about doing three things you did well, three things you change. Yeah. And you can do that about your work or you can do it about a social interaction. Maybe it's a bit creepy, I don't know. It's but it, it's observing, you know, what went well there? How can I replicate that? And a lot of it is actually, I don't want to use the, I'm slightly sickened by this expression, self-care. A lot of it is about self-care, which is really about knowing where your ego is sitting. Mm -hmm. Where I often ask myself, 
where is your resentment? Like, what are you feeling resentful about? Because you need to get rid of that. Yeah. So constant, and it's really useful, I think, in freelance as well is, you know, which clients are making me feel resentful? Which aspects of my work is feeling like, oh, this is way more hard work than it should be. Mm-hmm. This is not where my... This is not where my heart lies. (laughs) Figuring out pockets of resentment or say the question, what am I feeling resentful about? Or what am I putting up with? Really useful for figuring out sort of where your ego is sitting. Are you comfortable with this? What needs to change? It's a bit like that expression, change what you can't accept and accept what you can't change which is a complete tautology, right? And it's a Venn diagram. And the bit in the middle is whatever you should be doing next. Mm -hmm. So if there are things that are driving you so, so crazy and you know you can't accept them, you must change them. Mm -hmm. And it's having the confidence to do that as well because I think we get locked into these, this is is what is expected. So it's like one thing, you mentioned Catherine Tate earlier, like one thing I took away from your interview with Catherine was that, she's not afraid to go, oh, I don't want a moderator at this event. She she sets the rules. Whereas most of us, we go into these situations and we go, oh, there's a moderator because we're told that's how it is. And I think a lot of us don't have the confidence to actually say, I perform best under these circumstances and that's how it needs to be for this to continue. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that because that kind of question has become very gendered in the work that I've been doing around how to own the room at events and things. And I think sometimes we can tend to say, oh, women are very afraid to dictate their own circumstances and ask to not have a moderator. Whereas I do think it's not necessarily a gendered thing. I think it is, yeah, generally, I mean, it's partly because of this concept I like to talk about called the social editor. We will have a social editor in us who is dictating how we behave in, in circumstances to smooth the passage of relations and to, you know, when I, I turn up, I want you to like me and I mm-hmm. want us to get on. And, you know, I don't say, where is my oat milk frappuccino that I put on my rider? Yeah, yeah guys, where is it? Um, <laughs> Sorry. I it's really on, want it's an oat way. milk frappuccino. <laughs> it's about, you know, being a reasonable person, the social editor. So we want to be nice. We don't want to create problems for the organiser of the event and say, oh my God, I don't want a moderator. Have you prepared my slides? It's We don't, but we're so scared of being... I think Donald Trump, when Mm. there's no way we're ever going to be Donald Trump. People need to stop worrying about this. I think people think that if you turned up at an event and said, actually, I'd rather just do this on my own, you're making life easier for other people, not more difficult. You're not being, it's, we're very, all very scared of being a diva, actually, in a non-gendered way. And often we're not being a diva. We're just setting boundaries. We're just saying, this is what I'd like. People always say this to me about chairs at events as well, as in the physical chair. So I really hate sitting on a high stool. And there's, if you do TV as well, there's often a high stool. And yeah. like, I have, you know, not inconsiderable thighs. And I do not want to sit on that stool. And I don't have massively long legs. I want to sit on that stool. I'm going to look like Hermit the Frog, but fat. Like Miss Piggy cross with Hermit the Frog. <laughs> like, that's quite funny. Actually, I might cultivate that look, but I don't want to look like that. It's not going to make me feel good and I'm not going to relax and give the best of myself. So if I can, I'll say, oh, is there any way we could switch those chairs? Yeah. I mean, we we were just perched up on on some stools recently and I'm a leaner. Like I'm, I, I need I need a chair back or something to lean on. And yeah, we we perched ourselves up on these little things because we didn't think 
we didn't think to ask, did we? Yeah. And it, we were we were not comfortable. No, I suppose that comes with experience as well, doesn't it? And yeah. once you've done it enough times, you know what you like, what you work best with. And I think also realizing that the people who are booking you or who you're working with don't know what works to you as well. They just they're just doing something because they assume that's no, just they, fine. They will be doing something by default. Mm. They won't be doing it thinking. I am Kenneth Branagh and I am directing this production yeah. and it needs high stools. And there's a very good reason for that. You know, yeah. they'll just be thinking, oh yeah, we've got those stools. Let's put those on the stage. Yeah. So I think, yeah, the people on the other side of that, as soon as you ask or say, this is what I'd like, they're generally just like, okay, fine. Yeah, exactly. Or they're quite happy that mm. someone's taken charge. I think a lot of it is we all have a tendency to want someone else to take charge mm. and like know, know who the parents are in the situation. And very often, actually, we're the parent, <laughs> you, know, you know, we don't like taking charge and, and being like, oh, actually, and I've had to learn that at events and things, especially because I do a lot on my own and it's just me up on stage. Oh, actually, I'm in charge here. I'm the responsible adult. I have to dictate the terms and tell people what I want and what's going to work mm-hmm. and take it. And it's on me if it's wrong. Too bad. Yeah. Learn better for next time. It's interesting that you mentioned a minute ago about things being gendered. So um, obviously in research for the podcast, I read your book and I wouldn't have, have read it had I had we not been interviewing you um, because the the title is for, it's, it's a book that is aimed at women. But I mean, I learned so much from reading it. I think it's a fucking brilliant book. So thank you so much for writing it. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm really glad that I got the chance to discover it. And I think like whoever's listening to this, be it like... With podcasts, it's difficult. You don't get gender breakdowns, but judging from our DMs, I would imagine we have a 50-50 split of, of men and women. So I would encourage all the men listening to to buy the book and to, to also... I suppose it's something that I've been aware of quite a lot because our, business part, our third business partner is female and through her sort of telling us the struggles that she has as a woman in business, that's always been something that we've started to realise that, that this is a thing. Otherwise, just as stupid idiot men, we would just blindly walk forward not realising any of this stuff is going on. But, but Yona sort of really smartened us up as to how things are going. But I would say if you're a man reading the book, it will actually it will turn you on to the fact of, of how many barriers there are that have been imposed on, on women in speaking situations, be that in an office meeting even, like, could you break it down from like TED Talk stage all the way down to, to just saying thanks a birthday or something like that. And You have read with great care. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Viv. Well, thank you for writing it. But, um, but I mean, obviously you do, you do workshops with, with mixed groups as well. So is it okay for men to read your book and and why did you write it specifically with women in mind? Yeah, those are great questions and I repeatedly ask myself these questions the more events. I did an event this week at Conway Hall in London, 400 people sold out. There were four men <laughs> and I, that's intentional. It was intentional from the beginning of, you know, the book is called How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking and a lot of thought went into that title because I wanted it to clearly signal this is a book for women. However, as you have consumed the book, you'll know that there's a ton of disclaimers in the content about this is not really about women. And that's a very contradictory concept. And I was slightly uh, called on it by my publishers who, when I first gave the book in, they came back and said, we don't think we can publish this because it's not feminist enough. Wow. And I said, 
let it stand. I'm not changing a thing. Too bad. And they said, are you absolutely sure? Because I think people are going to criticize you for this. Because they wanted it to be more. Men, keep out of our space. This is all about us. And for me, although I know that some people will be put off by the title, just as you were, you know, before you were forced to read it because the situation was coming (laughs) up. And I really had to take that risk because it was so important to me to address this problem. It's, It's that sort of elephant in the room of... The, all the discomfort that we have around gender and I was determined to find a way of approaching it that was for women but not exclusively and it's a really really difficult space uh, to navigate but I absolutely didn't want it to be in the territory of this is all men's fault mm-hmm. uh, and especially didn't want the territory of women have a special problem around speaking Let's talk about women's yeah. special problems. Is your cervix in the correct place? <laughs> Are you wearing the right bra? You know, there's. I'm no way trying to say that women have special problems around speaking. They don't. It's all about the unspoken context that we operate in. And there are many, many outliers in this context. And that's why there's a breadth of examples in the book from... Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Emma Watson, J.K. Rowling, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Joan Rivers, Virginia Woolf. These people, not as women, oh my God, they're so different. Like there's no, uh, so it's, a lot of it is about individuality and trying to convince the reader, whoever they are, man, woman, whatever, trying to convince them that inside them is an individual speaker who can be confident in their space and show us whoever they are. And it's all going to look completely different. And it doesn't have to look like Michelle Obama or Joan Rivers. It has to look like whoever you are. And there was no book like that. You know, all of the books that existed, you know, I've read loads of books about drama, comedy, acting, speech writing, making speeches. And either they're very technical and they're very like, you know, there's an amazing book, which is gender non-gender specific um, called Gravitas by Caroline Goider, G-O-Y-D-E-R, who's a fantastic voice coach and she's working on an amazing new book about voice. And she is an incredible specialist on how to have confident posture, how to, where your diaphragm should be. You know, she's a trained voice coach and she's amazing. She's great on charisma, gravitas, authority, all of those things, but she comes at it from a very technical standpoint. So that stuff is all covered off and all the stuff about how did Winston Churchill write his speeches? Here is Martin Luther King. You know, there's loads of stuff on that, Mm. on rhetoric and oratory And I wanted to do something that just approached things only looking at women, because a lot of those books about speeches are only looking at men. There might be one woman in there. And I just, I knew that I wasn't, I'm not 100%, I'm really not happy about having to say, speaking as a woman like that's it's horrific (laughs) but it's kind of where we're at so I had to address the context and for people who might say oh why didn't you write a book that's for everyone why do you have to aim it at women I just have to suck that up as a kind of a necessary evil I would say and I do teach workshops where it's mixed 
And a lot of it becomes way more about something I talk about a lot in the book, and we've touched on it here, alpha culture, because it's often alpha culture, like the idea that you have to be charismatic, you have to be really confident. Hey, I'm taking over this meeting now. Here's my PowerPoint. (laughs) Like you have to be like a stand-up comedian or a stereotype of a stand-up comedian in order to be a confident speaker. And that is a stereotype which affects men as much as it affects women. You know, these things are also to do with class, race, all kinds of, you know, diversion and and, um, diversion. (laughs) We should change um, diversity and inclusion just to diversion. Yeah, Um, (laughs) Diversity and inclusion issues. You know, we all have points at which we feel vulnerable. And hopefully this work helps people to address their vulnerabilities. And vulnerabilities are are gender non-gender specific you know we all have vulnerabilities but I have found from the work that I've done and from doing all the events with how to in the room and getting feedback from readers women are much more comfortable talking about this so in some ways they're an easier audience to address and that was the audience that I wanted to reach I love the fact that there are collateral men reading it and there are I know lots of men who have read it and said yeah this is really what I needed to read yeah I think for me the the chapter on I'm not saying you're a beta by the way <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks mate um I yeah the chapter for me was the Oprah chapter and your description of her um Golden Globe speech is like just captivating it's incredible and I think we can we can learn from anywhere and for me to have have let the title just just say to me, oh, that's not for me, was was really silly on my part. And I've got so much from listening to those stories of those amazing female speakers that there's a load of things that I'm going to incorporate into my speaking. And that doesn't make, I'm not going to be presenting and people will think there's a woman. It's just, they're good, they're good presentation oh my God, skills. Wouldn't my teaching be so powerful if you read the book <laughs> and then presenting it? People are like, oh my God, it's a woman. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting the fact that you I love that you're honest about this you know you wouldn't have picked that book up why should you it's called women like and it isn't exactly pink but it's pink-ish um it's a kind of financial times pink um with red writing on it and it's clearly aimed at women but the point is all of the other books I was talking about their secret unspoken subtitle is Men in the Art of Brilliant Speaking. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And those are the books I had to read for 20 years, you know, including about comedy and comedy writing and, you know, maybe 10% of the content reflected on women. And I just, you know, I like doing things that are a little bit, fuck you, I suppose. And yeah. I was like, I'm right, I'm going to do 100% women content. No, Get great. over it. I think it's brilliant. And I mean, well, hopefully at your at your next event, you'll uh, you'll have from four men to eight because um, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> Emma, Emma Gannon actually yeah. sent us a message after after she was on the show, and she said, "Just wanted to thank you because my audience is primarily women, but a lot of men since being on your show, a lot of men have started discovering my content and sending me messages and oh, stuff. So um, and kind of and she." doesn't make content for women it's just kind of fallen that way well i know this is well this is the strange thing about capitalism is that it likes markets and gender Mm. is a market and it's so depressing and i hope people thinking about it and trying to figure out how to bust through it 
you know, the, for me, it, maybe it sounds contradictory for me to say that because um, the book is for women, but I took a very conscious decision to do that and think this book's going to find a market. It's going to find an audience and mm-hmm. needs to be clear about who that audience yeah. is and I can serve them and I can give them what they need. And what I want is for it to go massive. You know, I want to reach a million women globally with this book and then I can do another project and then I can do another project and the audience can grow and I can switch it and I can change it and I can use the platform from that to move on to something else. So I think it's so important for us to realize how gendered a lot of the content that we are fed is. And that's unavoidable in a lot of ways, but to just keep on challenging it you know a lot of the content I consume you know we were talking earlier about Gary V and Seth Godin it's quite it's quite macho Mm. and probably I don't know what you would think of those two I think a lot of their audience might be predominantly male I would imagine I so, yeah, especially Gary V. Yeah, but I, I don't yeah. care. I don't care. I love a bit of Gary V. Um, tiny man testosterone. <laughs> I love a bit of that. And I'm not remotely put off by it. And I think maybe, and I don't know if people of um, different ethnicities listening to this might feel the same way. You know, I've had to become gender blind to get to interesting information a long time ago. (laughs) So I was never put off by men talking to a male audience. Mm. I just want to get to the content. Yeah. 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 I think on the topic of Seth Godin, like about having a tribe and like having early adopters, that's kind of what I see like where you've led the book. Like you've got a tribe of people now who are early adopters and they're just going to share it with people. So if you go in and saying like, this is for this specific market, and it's good, which obviously it is, they're going to share it with other people and it will grow from there organically. So I think by saying it's just for women to start with, like women will read it and then share it with men because they know men will get benefit out of it as well. And I think that's a really smart way to go of like have that tribe and then let it kind of organically grow on its own. Yeah, I, and it's given you a mission as well um, yeah. because what a lot of people have contacted us with podcast questions and I always say to them to quote Simon Sinek, start with why. And your your podcast has a, a, such a clear why that it's it's almost an excuse for you to just talk to these interesting people. But you, ev- every episode has a the the same goal, which is I hope what this does as well is that we we're, we're trying to provide maximum value to the people that are listening. I mean, I think yours does in the same way. Even so much to the fact that you you will literally stop in the middle of the episode and, and really like key in on a particular thing that a guest mm-hmm. has said. And, um, but yeah, I think that's a, a really great point is you are, you are, you're finding your tribe and that is going to explode and, and already is really. Yeah. Well, this is a huge shift I would say in the last 10 years to how people create consume and consume content yeah. because previously the kind of content you're talking about would have been ego driven. Mm-hmm. So I might have done an interview series. It's like Viv Grasscup interviews. Oh, Nigella Lawson. Da, da, da. And that is what my podcast is. Like there isn't an interview with me. In <laughs> but I absolutely don't want it to be that. I want it to be only listen to this interview to get something for you, for yourself. And if you don't, it hasn't worked and there's no point of it. You know, God knows, like, I love Graham Norton, the Graham Norton show. Amazing. Um, That has its place, you know, And, and actually that isn't ego driven because it is 
giving you entertainment. It's giving you a break from life. It's giving you a laugh. It's giving you an insight into those people's lives. It's fun. You know, we really need those things. But we don't need everything to be that. And I quite, without wanting, I don't want to do something that's didactic. So it's not like, here are the rules of public speaking, number one. Uh, It's trying to give things that are useful that people can take away into their own lives. And I think there's a big shift in British culture. I think in American culture, that sort of self-help idea has been prevalent for longer than it is here, like 30, 40 years. But here in the last 10 years, I think people are really starting to take it on board now. And it's definitely generational as well, because in my generation, it was much more, you know, here's this big name columnist. Be interested in everything they say Mm. because they have status. And that's just collapsed now. And thank goodness. I wonder if that's a religious thing, because obviously America is quite religious and they're almost like looking for something to be a part of the whole time so that self-help it's they're constantly looking for something to be a part of whereas i feel like british people are a bit more on their own and a lot less religious and as a kind of country and yeah maybe that is a phd thesis my mm. friend um i once met richard dawkins and I can't remember why we got talk. I know, I think it was me who said, Richard Dawkins, I only have one question for you. What do you think of Oprah Winfrey? Because <laughs> <laughs> I love Oprah, but it's, I absolutely love Oprah. And I have been to see her at the Oprah Winfrey conference in Atlanta um, in 2011. And I was about 10 meters away from her. It was amazing. Um, and she gave a speech which passed in a second. It's the most powerful public speaking I've ever seen. I mean, it is on a, it's actually, a, it's a religious experience. Yeah. Very literally. I mean, I really felt like I'd been transported to another realm and, you know, God was talking to me. Yeah. It's getting a bit weird now. So I think it was shortly after I'd been to that, that I happened to meet Richard Dawkins at this uh, literature festival. And I almost wanted a reassurance from him <laughs> that as as an atheist and a philosopher and an observer of modern society, that the Oprah phenomenon is not sinister mm-hmm. because I had bought into it so wholesale. Yeah. I almost felt like, am I using this instead of religion? Am yeah. I, is this a cult? Mm-hmm. Like, And is it right for me to have these feelings towards this person? And he gave a really interesting answer, which was that he loved Oprah and he found the phenomenon fascinating. And he posed exactly the question that you posed, which was, I've always wondered whether this is a replacement for religion and it's impossible to answer. Mm. And it kind of, I think it kind of is, it really speaks for itself. Of course, it's a sort of a replacement for religion. And actually when you see Oprah live rather than, I don't know if she, I think even in things like Super Soul Sundays, she wouldn't necessarily go in this direction. Um, But certainly on her TV programs previously uh, on network television, she won't go too far towards talking about God, Mm -hmm. but in live events she does and it has a religious component and she clearly speaks of her Christianity and that was quite interesting to me of and I think that's a phenomenon in American culture that we're not so familiar with here you know for example Trump Mm -hmm. has very occasionally sort of been forced to say yes I am a believer yeah you know it's almost as you know in UK life you you be neutral about your you know don't lie about it, yeah. but you can be neutral about your religious conviction. Whereas in America, you sort of have to say, mm-hmm. or, or you have to hide the fact that you're a massive atheist. 
Um, yeah, so it's interesting, you know, Richard Dawkins failed to answer that question, but he admired Oprah, I think not necessarily in that he's a subscriber to O Magazine, as I am, <laughs> but as a phenomenon and a, and a quasi-religious phenomenon. He, her level of influence is just so through the roof. Yeah, well, I think really her level of influence is to do with storytelling. Mm. She's a fantastic face-to-face storyteller and she has crafted a narrative about her life um, that is authentic mm-hmm. and that people really respect and identify with. And she has, you know, much lots of figures like, I'm thinking of Madonna as well, you know, they have a lost parental figure or difficult hardship in their childhood. And I think even those of us who haven't experienced things as extreme mm-hmm as those figures you know we all feel a bit sort of lost and hopeless and and um I don't want to say badly parented in case my parents listen to this they probably won't so it's okay I love you I love you my parents we all feel like that it's not because of what happened to us it's the human condition and Mm. I think something in all of us gravitates towards that narrative of oh yeah we're all a bit broken but it doesn't mean that we can't yeah, I think it doesn't that, mean that we can't fly. <laughs> it's that zero, zero to hero mentality, isn't it? Of like, people love to see an underdog succeed. And that story of finding someone who's gone through all of that, because then if you're in a bit of a shit place at the time, you're like, well, there's a chance that like, gives you hope. It's like, I can do that as well because this person has. And if I follow in the footsteps of that person, I'm going to do it too. Yeah, they are role models of resilience mm. and of possibility. And, you know, that's the very American thing of the American dream, which is why I think a lot of these figures are American because it resonates very strongly with with that um, national identity. But I think that they're also really good at showing vulnerability from a place of power. And that's always really interesting to me is that we're often slightly turned off by vulnerability from a place of weakness. And that's a story we don't really want to hear. Mm. We want to hear when you've overcome it and then you tell us about what it was like when you were back there. But when you're there, well, we don't really want to know about that. It's a bit awkward. And that's kind of fascinating to me. And I like um, Brene Brown and her work around vulnerability and shame because she appears to be shifting that narrative slightly and saying, well, let's hear from the vulnerable people when they are vulnerable. Let's not wait for them to become a millionaire before we listen to their story and them saying, oh, there was a time when I only had $5 in my back pocket. Um, Let's hear from the guy who's got $5 in his back pocket. Let's hear from him. How's he getting through every day? You mentioned in the beginning of the book about the, the Catherine Ryan character. Yeah, it's from a film called The Post, about the Washington Post. And it's the story of the life of Catherine Graham, who owned the newspaper. Yeah. It had been owned by her father who died and passed it to her husband because he didn't want a woman to run it. Then her husband died and she ended up taking over. So Catherine Graham... And it's a true story, isn't it? True story, yeah. yeah. Catherine Graham is the owner of the Washington Post in this film and uh, she's being played by Meryl Streep. And you say in the beginning of the book that you feel like she had all of these amazing things that she was going to say, but she didn't feel like she could, or um, as you put it, she didn't want it badly enough. Yeah, so there's a key scene at the... It's the, the opening scene of the film, and it's really got nothing to do with public speaking or owning the room. But for me, it encapsulated everything about this feeling of 
I have to get this perfect and I have to do it right. Otherwise I can't do it at all. And I think that's one of the reasons most people stumble around public speaking, trying stand up for the first time. Like they can't bear the idea that whatever they do won't be perfect and won't work. And as you guys know, like working from that place is a disaster. You have to free yourself from that place. And in this scene, she has to go to the, I, I'm not very good at this kind of um, language, but the board of shareholders or something like that, like yeah. a big boardroom scene, all of the men who are in charge are deciding whether they're going to follow her leadership and accept her decision. They have to make an important decision about the future of the paper. And she has rehearsed this repeatedly. And she has a, a pad of paper, a legal pad, where she's written down all of her extremely important points that she's going to make. And she has practiced it. She's ready. She's going to convince them this is going to be her moment and she's going to take charge. And she gets in and she just bottles it. She looks at the pad. She looks at the people. I think there's a man in the room even who's kind of her supporter and she practiced it with him. I can't remember if I've made that bit up. And she just, but she just can't do it. And it's a heartbreaking moment. And you know that the film is going to be about her turning that moment around. And it is. And it's really about taking power. And I don't mean, oh, you know, everything is about, I am an owner of a newspaper and I must know how to take power. Like taking power can be a tiny thing. It can be saying to your commissioning editor, I've put my rates up and it has to be 20% more now. Mm -hmm. Perhaps say it a bit more articulately. <laughs> or saying to a festival organiser, by the way, I don't sit on high stools, so can you make sure there aren't any? <laughs> it's those tiny moments of, oh, for me, it's still, and I, I always say this, complaining in a restaurant. I can't bear to complain in a mm. restaurant. I, it makes That makes me feel like most people feel about doing stand-up comedy. I hate it. But it's that tiny moment of power of assertion. This is what I need. This is what I think. This is why you should listen to me. Make something happen. I matter. That moment. And to see Meryl Streep as Catherine Graham bottling it, it was so powerful for me in illustrating how tragic that feeling is and how important it is that we overcome it and how common it is. You know, people with tons of privilege, all the money in the world, all the power in the world, all the majority advantage in the world, even they struggle. Even they struggle to say, no, can you listen to me now? Mm. And it's because we, it's what we were saying before about this fear of shame, fear of exposure, fear of rejection of other people will say, yeah, right, no, no. Or that you know that in that moment you will struggle to say it in the way that it needs to be said. And so you don't try it at all. And the tools that I'm trying to give people with how to own the room, and this is not easy. It's not easy. It's not like read a book, listen to a podcast, try these three things and your life will be fine and you'll never have a problem ever again. Right? It's about giving people the courage to try things and fail. Because in that meeting, she, you know, she could have decided, oh, I, I'd rehearsed this, but now it's gone. So I'm going to read it. And she could say, I feel very strongly about this and I feel very emotional. So I'm going to read to you word for word what I want you to hear. Picks up her pad, hides behind it, even if she needs to, and reads. That's a really powerful thing to do. We never see anybody doing that. 
So great if you can find the courage to say, here's what I've come to say and this is it. But sometimes to say, I need to refer to my notes. This is what I'm going to say. As long as you say these things definitely, you can get away with it. Yes, you're both nodding we, at me. We all have we all have a voice and now especially with kind of the the invent of social media and especially like platforms that have got video capabilities of of being able to put it out we can all we can all have a voice and i think one thing that i really took away from the book is that you have a voice you the listener whoever whoever you are god i was about to go my voice <laughs> okay but stop everyone has a voice and um and i think it's it's important that you find it and don't be scared to find it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a huge contradiction if we don't use this medium and this technology that we've got. It's, oh, I don't want to sound like the ancient one. Um, although sometimes I, I really do feel, you know, cause I'm 45. I, I feel, and I'm, I don't know, there's a name for it, isn't it? Like being a geriatric not early adopter, late adopter. Like I, I'm not, I didn't grow up with this mm. uh, technology in my first job. And when I was an editorial assistant on a Squire magazine, before I became an editor, um, I was being paid 12,000 pounds a year. And I got given after six months, a 500 pound pay rise, nice. which amounted to 30 pounds extra a month after tax. So I was like, mm, how is that a pay rise? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, when I first had that job, one of my jobs was to input copy from writers who would fax in their copy and I would have their fax next to my desk and I would type it in. I was basically a copy typist. There was no internet. There was no email. This was in 1995. Very quickly in the next three years, those things existed, but I can remember when they didn't. And when I first, on my first date with my, with my husband, who I met in 1998, we've been married for nearly 20 years, he told me about Ask Jeeves. Do you know, <laughs> do you know what that is? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Like early Google, yeah. pre-Google. He told me about Ask Jeeves and I said, that's not possible. You need an encyclopedia for those things. I didn't believe that Ask Jeeves was possible. <laughs> so I can remember when you could not publish your own stuff when you had to go to gatekeepers for everything, you had to go with your begging bowl and say, please let me be on this program. Please publish my book. Please publish my article. And you had to constantly be looking for other people to say yes and give you permission to do things. And for this to have turned around in the last 15 years and people to be able to say, you know what, I choose me you know, that's a Seth Godin thing, right? Mm. Don't wait for anyone else to choose you. Why are you doing that? Like, choose you. You've only got one life. Choose you. And if other people want to come along with you on the journey, great. If they don't, fine. They go find another person. And it it's extraordinary to me. It's so freeing. And we are starting to take it for granted. In a way, that's a good thing. But reaching the the challenge, reaching towards the challenge of how to get the most out of these opportunities whilst overcoming all of your doubts and anxieties, which are totally natural in all of us. I think it's just so powerful, you know, and it's great for you as a person if you can overcome your inhibitions and all of your natural self-doubt and all of the natural imposter syndrome that we all have. And you get something out of it, 
simply by overcoming those things, even if no one even consumed your content. But if you can then use that to create content that's going to inspire other people, give them ideas, make them think, oh yeah, I'm going to ask for a 20% extra on this commission because they might not give me 20%, but they might give me 10 or five. Great. Then you've made a difference. Yeah, absolutely. There's something that Tim Ferriss talks about at one point. I love Tim Ferriss. You see, I'm very comfortable with the testosterone. (laughs) Um, He's got more testosterone than him. It's kind of getting used to that rejection and getting used to people saying no. So I think what he does, he he set like a challenge of every time you go and buy something from a shop or anywhere, ask for 10% off. Just keep doing it because most of the time people will say no. Every now and again, someone will say yes. And you'll just get, you, you won't have that fear of just asking because you've done it so many times. And that's what confidence, confidence is, isn't it? It's just like the repetition. So by continually doing that, you, you kind of lose the fear of no. That's lovely. I don't speak Italian, but when I went to Italy when I was probably in my teens, I was buying stuff from markets a lot, like food or also like souvenirs or bits and pieces and I learned the phrase mi può fare un piccolo sconto which means can you make me a small discount mi può fare un piccolo sconto and I really enjoyed saying this to people it was the only thing I could say in Italian so I just like wheeled it out mi può fare un piccolo sconto and their reaction was just so delightful because it was always like how dare you that's insane (laughs) or like you clearly don't speak Italian but the only thing you've got to say is please can you give me a small discount and often because of the like boldness of the interaction they wouldn't necessarily give me a discount but they might give me something free yeah or we would have an interesting exchange like non-verbal because we can speak to each other but it was great I've I haven't thought of that for years I'm now going to I don't know if I'm ready to try it in London. I'm very good at it in Italy. Be bold. Just just do it in London. Get free ice cream. You get free ice cream if you do that. This has been incredible. Thank you, Viv. And where can people find you online? I am at Viv Grosskop, V-I-V-G-R-O-S-K-O-P. It is a name that means lively big head or lively fat head <laughs> if I'm feeling particularly depressed. Um, yeah, at Viv Grosskop on Instagram, Twitter, a little bit of Facebook. We could have a whole podcast, couldn't we, about Facebook? Yeah, a little bit of Facebook. And there's also a podcast called How to Own the Room, which is on all podcast channels. Love which are excellent. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya. See ya.